you will take your Bibles and turn or swipe over to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 today, Romans 15, 14 through 21. Begin reading in verse 14. These are the words of the Apostle Paul written to the church at Rome, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my good, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly, by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak on anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's pray together. Lord, would you indeed help us to see today and help us to understand? Father, would you come and meet us now and by your Spirit give us understanding of this word that we might be encouraged, convicted, and made more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. As Jeremy mentioned in his prayer a moment ago, I'll be leaving this Wednesday to fly down to Brazil to spend some time with some brothers and sisters there. And As I was thinking about that trip, uh, my son Colin is going with me. It's his first time out of the country, I think first time on an airplane, and so I've been thinking about a lot lately about flying. And many of you fly, some of you fly weekly, and a lot of travel that goes on. And, you know, there's a lot of things that go on on, on an airplane when you think about just the process of flying somewhere. One of the things that's always stuck out to me was, is the, the 30 to 40 minutes before the plane lands. The captain or someone will typically come over the, the speakers to inform you that your plane is now engaged in its final descent to your destination, to your location. If he's a good captain, he'll give you the weather report. So you know how to pack, I guess, if it's too late. I don't know. But, you know, when you think about that, that period of time, it, it, you know, they come over and they prepare you for that landing. It seems to me that that's the longest part of the flight. Once he's told you you're about to descend into your destination, it seems to me that it takes forever to actually get the wheels on the ground from that moment. It just seems like it, maybe your anticipations build up more now, and it just seems like a long time from when he says we're about to land to you actually land. Sometimes 30, 40 minutes. Well, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking how Romans is like that. Here in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14, we could say that we're beginning our final descent to land this plane of Romans. As I pointed out last week, verse 13 sounds like a good ending, doesn't it? Sounds like a great place to kind of wrap up the letter. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The end. Yours truly, Paul. But it's not the end. In fact, we have several verses left. We have another chapter indeed to consider. And as Paul has kind of wrapped up his main argument, there's still some flying to do. There's still some things to happen before the letter comes to its appropriate end in chapter 16. In fact, this final descent is going to take us I think our last sermon in Romans is scheduled to be November the 18th. So we still have four more Sundays after today to look at some material in this very important letter. And what a letter it's been. As we consider the structure of this book, we have seen, we've gone from the doctrinal to the very practical. And today we could perhaps say we're moving 
to the personal. Paul is written at length about the gospel. He has written at length about what the gospel calls us to do and, and how it informs and shapes our living together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And today we, we get into a section of the letter here at the end that's kind of like an epilogue, if you will. He, he's, he's making some very personal remarks and, and he's beginning to, to speak directly about his personal ministry in the past and what he's anticipating in the future. So he concludes this letter, and one of the things that he's wanting to do here, he's wanting to remind them again of the rationale for writing the letter that he wrote. And in so doing, he's wanting to remind them of the authority behind his writing. And so here in chapter 15, the the latter half of chapter 15, he does a couple of things. In the text that we'll look at today, he kind of looks back at his calling and past travels that have brought him to the place he is today. And then next week, he's going to look ahead to his future plans, his ultimate desire to get to Rome in order to get the gospel to Spain. Now, it's important to remember that that Paul has endeavored to preach the gospel and plant churches all throughout this region, this Roman Empire, if you will. A lot of work that he has been part of in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, in Greece, and, and that, that initial area, and, and, and there's more work to be done. But his goal now is to get to Rome. One of the things that he wants to do is he wants to visit the believers there and encourage them. But he also wants to set up kind of a home base so that he will have a launch point to go on to Spain. Kind of a Antioch 2.0, if you will. Kind of a missionary sending city uh, to have a church there that he can be based out of in order to see the gospel go further. So one of the things that you see here in chapter 15 is you, you get a little taste of Paul's missionary heart. You get a little bit of taste of his ambition to be used of God to see the gospel advance among the nations. Indeed, these verses bleed mission. And we know that Paul was perhaps one of the greatest missionaries that's ever ever lived. And so when we read these verses, you know, you can't help but think, well, these are some personal comments that Paul's making about the believers in Rome. And also, you you basically see a travel log. Kind of where he's been and where he's hoping to go. And so, what does that mean for us? How how can we be helped by a travel log written a long time ago with a man that had a very unique and distinct calling to be a missionary to the Gentiles? One of the things that I think that we can take away from this part of the letter, is that a people who are saved by the gospel and a people who are shaped by the gospel will be compelled to be part of sharing and advancing the gospel. A people who are saved and shaped by the gospel will be a people also compelled to share and to spread the gospel. You know, there's not so much a driving imperative here for us to be exhorted by in these verses. After all, these are Paul's travel plans. But I think when we read this, as we get a little taste of his missionary zeal, there are some important observations or principles, we could even say, that we can glean from and take from Paul's own heart because you're not called to be Paul. There's a lot we can learn from him, but he had a very unique calling, a very specific calling to a specific part of the world in a specific time. And so while we can say there are some things that we can mimic in Paul's life for sure, there are some unique things related to his calling that may or may not be repeatable. However, there are some critical things, I think, that as we observe Paul's heart, that we begin to get a taste of that I would, I would say are timeless and would prove to guide and govern us all as Great Commission Christians, as a people who are compelled by the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples to the nations. So whether that's going to the ends of the earth or staying back here in a support role, I think what we see in Paul's life 
should be and could be, it must be in many ways, true of every believer. So what is it that we see here? I want us to walk through several observations that we take from this text about being a Great Commission people. We're going to look at four things this morning. First of all, the one thing that we see in Paul's life, and we could say other believers as well, is that as we strive to be a Great Commission people, we need to first and foremost connect with the right community. If we're going to be about the gospel, if we're going to be about gospel mission, listen, gospel mission is, it comes out of local churches. It comes out of the, of the believers in Jesus Christ being networked well together and, and from a community of believers where it's going out from these communities. Now, Paul did not plant the church of Rome. And while he knew some of the believers there, they'd made their way there and he had met them and known them from other, other places that he, where he had been and they had been, he had never made it to Rome. He only knew the church by reputation. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty amazing. And this is a day without cable news, without Twitter, without Facebook. And Paul knew this church. He knew about them. He knew their reputation. Look at verse 14, what he's able to say about a people he's never met in person. I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Paul has written at length and very boldly on some important matters in this letter. And some believe that Paul is, is almost apologetic in his tone here. Not apologizing for what he wrote, but, but making sure the believers in Rome didn't misunderstand his intent. Obviously, many believers, many Christians in Rome would have already known much of what Paul had written. And so they could have been, you know, you get a letter like this. This is a pretty extensive letter. You get a letter like this, and you could have potentially been taken aback by the length and the boldness of this letter as if it's, it could have come across as if somehow Paul was doubting their faith, which is not the case at all. And so while Paul has written at great length and at great depth about the gospel and exhorted them to live out the gospel in community together, he wants to reassure them that he's not writing to correct some, some fatal error in the church or he's not writing to necessarily address some significant division in the church. He's writing to encourage them and to remind them. But to also say, listen, I am satisfied what I hear about you. I'm encouraged, Christians in Rome, I'm encouraged to hear what, what's going on, that you're, that you're filled with all knowledge, that you're full of goodness. And that you're able to instruct each other in the truth. Remember Paul's objective. We're going to see that later on in verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So there's a little taste to Jeremy's sermon next week. That's all I'll say, Jeremy. But he's hoping to get to Spain. And it's important to Paul that he connect with a healthy church from which he can continue his missionary strategy. So Paul zeroes in on Rome. Now why is this? It was certainly, we could say, it was a very strategic city in the world at that time. I mean, it's the heart of, of all that's going on. But we also can't help but see that much of it had to do with the community of Christians that were there. It was important that Paul connect with a thriving, strong, healthy community of Christians and the church in Rome met this standard, met this expectation. And so then we ask, well, what was it about the church in Rome that caught Paul's eye? What was it that, that encouraged him that that encouraged him to the point of wanting to go there and enjoy their company for a while so that he could be helped by them to continue his missionary journey. I mean, he's, he's basically saying, listen, I'm encouraged by you. I want to come and spend time with you. 
be encouraged by you, encourage you as well, and then be sent on and helped by you in my journey to Spain. Well, what was it that Paul looked at at this church? One of the things that we could take from this is, even as we're thinking about as Christians today, what is it that, that, that ought to be true of churches? What was the characteristic of this church that, that kind of met Paul's standard for him to partner with? Notice four things that he identifies here. First of all, he says they're full of goodness. The gospel has had an impact in the lives of the believers there. That was clear to Paul. You go back through and his initial greeting and certainly the, the, the closing chapters here, we, we see that Paul was convinced that the gospel had been rooted there and it had had an impact on many, many people there. And so what Paul is doing is identifying this strong moral character. We could say their spiritual maturity. Paul sees that about them, and he calls it out. He says, you're full of goodness. He didn't say they're perfect. They never, they, they, they never make mistakes. He, he's, he's all, all he's doing is he's observing the fact that they, they were a people who seemed to genuinely hate evil, and delight in righteousness. There didn't seem to be a major conflict or division, although he wanted to make this sure that relationships between the weak in faith and strong in faith were, were being encouraged. But they seemed to be a church known by upstanding moral character, that they were generous and kind. We could go back to Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, and say that all of these things that he says here about the marks of a true Christian were true in Rome. They loved each other, cared for each other, contributed to the needs of one another. On and on we could go. They were full of goodness. They were known by their character. Number two, he says they were filled with all knowledge. Not just a knowledge in general, but a deep awareness and understanding of God's truth, specifically the gospel. Listen, this was no lightweight church, especially when it came to doctrine. It was a church that was grounded in truth. It was a church that was hungry to grow in that truth. Now listen, they certainly didn't know everything there was to know about God, about the gospel. I mean, the letter itself demonstrates that they didn't know everything that they needed to know. But there was a doctrinal stability there that was important, that undergirded them. So they were filled with all knowledge. Notice the third thing. They were able, they were competent to instruct one another. These believers were not always having to be dependent upon their leadership, their pastors or elders. The Christians in Rome were able and competent regarding matters of life and doctrine. They were able to encourage and warn and advise, give counsel to each other. They were very much like Paul encouraged the, the church at Colossae in chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul wrote to them, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This is what was going on in Rome. The word of Christ dwelt in them richly. They were able, they were competent in, in their teaching and admonishing and advising each other in the truth. They were able to mutually edify each other. And then number four, a sense of gospel centrality was true of this church. Paul had said on some points I've written very boldly, but notice what he says, by way of reminder. This was not new information. This was not information that the church of Rome, that they kind of got planted and now they kind of needed the, the rest of the story, so to speak. They were just kind of barely Christian and now Paul's going to write and help them grow in their faith. Well, certainly they're going to grow in their faith. But notice he says, by way of reminder, I'm, I'm wanting to remind you of what you already know. They were a church that were built on the gospel. I mean, this, this letter just bleeds gospel, doesn't it? So he's writing to remind them of something they already know. And so the gospel had been central to this church. 
And Paul says, I'm writing by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by the Lord. He understood his calling to the Gentiles, and because of that calling, he writes to remind them of some things, namely the gospel, the good news that saved them, and the gospel that shaped them. This ministry of reminding, I think, is an important ministry. We see it in other texts. You go to 1 Corinthians 4, 7, or 2 Timothy 2, 14, 2 Peter 3, 1, Jude verse 5, and, and you see that Many times over that, that those who have been inspired to write these letters to these particular churches or specific Christians, they're writing many times as way of reminder. I want you to think about these qualities for a minute. Full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct, built on the gospel. This is what Paul looked for in a church to partner with in ministry. Now, I want you to think about those things, and then I want you to compare that to things that, in our day and time, people often look for in a church. This usually isn't the top four. We live in a very consumeristic culture, don't we? So even in our approach to church, it's all about the programs. What programs do you have? What kind of activities do you have? They don't go to the confession of faith, they go to the calendar. Specialized ministries. Does worship have a light show? Smoke machines. But what if we started where Paul started? Looking for churches that were grounded in the truth. Flourished because of these things. Brothers and sisters, I think it's just a reminder to us that if we're going to be committed to the Great Commission, which all believers should be committed to, then we all need to be part of and connected to healthy churches. And all of these are qualities that, that, mark, that are signs of health in the life of a particular congregation. Moral character built that, that flows out of the gospel matters. How you live matters. What you believe matters. Somebody pointed me just this week to a report that came out of Ligonier Ministry called The State of Theology. You can go to this website, thestateoftheology.com, and just read the, the report there that, uh, of evangelical Christians in America, of some of the things that they're believing today. Just a couple, just to kind of whet your appetite a bit, one, a couple of the, the findings. So people were polled based upon comments. One such comment, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion, not about objective truth. 30% of evangelical Americans said, I agree with that strongly. And those that believe that somewhat were 30%. So 60% agreed. Religious opinions built upon Religious beliefs built on my own personal opinion, not objective truth. I mean, there's a bunch of these. About the holiness of God, even the smallest sin deserves eternal punishment. 58% strongly disagreed with that. This is one that caught my eye. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Listen to that statement carefully. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% strongly agreed with that statement. Listen, Jesus was not created. He's the creator. 73% of American evangelicals said, yeah, I believe that. You can go to that website and read later. Just, just remind us. The churches that are filled with the truth are churches that we need to be connected with and connected to if we're going to make a gospel impact in the world. Able to instruct that we're able to, to live out the gospel and that we're able to have the word so richly dwelling in us that we're able to encourage and exhort and counsel and advise and, and to be able to speak truth into people's lives. Because it matters 
that we're connected with the right community. If you're new to our fellowship, maybe you're visiting here and you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you connected with, with us here. We, we, would, we want to be about these things. We don't do it perfectly. But we want, this is what we want to be about. We want to be full of goodness. We want to be filled with truth. We want to be able and competent to encourage each other, advise each other in things that matter. We want to be centered upon the gospel. There are other churches in our community that are this as well. Find one of us and connect there. Pour your life into those ministries. So who you connect with matters. Number two, if we're going to be faithful in the Great Commission and the work that God has called us to do, we need to see worship as the proper end. Look at with me at verses 16 through 18. Paul had just said, I've written to you very boldly on, by way of reminder, by the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Notice what he says, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is kind of some strange language, especially for Paul to use about himself and about the Gentiles. Notice he, he refers to himself as a priest, and he refers to the Gentiles as an offering. This is Old Testament language. And obviously Paul's using some metaphorical language here because we know that Paul is not a priest, nor did he light the Gentiles on fire as an offering. He's using an Old Testament language of priest and sacrifice to point us to the worship of God. And he likely, some say, he likely saw himself here as a fulfillment in some way of Isaiah 66 verse 20 where Isaiah foresees the day when the Gentiles will be reached with the good news and presented as an offering unto the Lord. Isaiah 66 verse 20. And Paul likely knew that and he likely saw his calling and ministry to the Gentiles as some level of fulfillment of that text. In short, Paul is using this Old Testament language to highlight the goal of his ministry, which was to glorify God through the conversion and obedience of the Gentiles. One way that we could say it is that Paul was a worshiper seeking more worshipers. He saw himself as a one who had been called of the Lord to go and pour himself out among the nations so that he could present the nations as something pleasing to the Lord, their conversion and their obedience. You see it there in the text. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When we think about that, how, how, do, how does something like this instruct us since the bulk of us are Gentiles? Well, if you go back to chapter 12, we know that when we think about sacrifice, sacrificial language, we know that from Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're called to be living sacrifices, aren't we? We know that the Old Testament system of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, has long been fulfilled and replaced in Jesus Christ, and we know that now we are called to be sacrifices, poured out our entire lives, poured out to the Lord as an offering acceptable to Him in the way that we live, the way that we think, and the way that we conduct ourselves. Our lives are to be viewed and lived out as living sacrifices. And so that should be the goal of our own lives, but also a desire to see others live to that end. Great question to ask as we think about these truths. A couple of questions just to consider for your own soul. Who is it and what is it that you are serving today? Can your life be described as a living sacrifice to the Lord? as Paul's was and as the Gentiles were being presented to the Lord as a pleasing offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord? Can your life be described as such? Do you view your life as something to be spent for the sake of God's glory? But not just you, what is it that you're Seeking, who are you seeking and what are you seeking? Thinking about your family, your friends. Listen, what is your ultimate desire for them? 
Friends, we should desire to see the ongoing fulfillment of God's plan to reach the ends of the earth. We should see the ongoing desire and fulfillment of the Gentiles to be presented to the Lord as a pleasing offering. That that should compel us. That that should lead us in faithfulness to go to our neighbors. To go and to be sent and to send others to the nations. Yes, as an act of gospel mission, but as an act of worship. See, our desire and our aim ought to be motivated by seeing more and more come to know the Lord Jesus and to become true worshipers of the true God. I love what he said in his book called Let the Nations Be Glad. John Piper said in the very first chapter of that book, missions exist because worship doesn't. Paul understood that. He understood the reason he's writing to Rome so that he can hopefully get to Spain is because there were people in Spain who did not know God and did not worship him, and that's what he wanted. He was compelled by that. He was driven by that. And friends, that should be the same thing that compels us and drives us as well. We should see worship as the proper end of our calling as Christians and to be part of the Great Commission. But number three, we should recognize the power of God in this work. Notice Paul says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work. Do you think Paul's going on an ego trip here? No, keep reading. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Listen, Paul was a special man, but he wasn't Superman. Perhaps the greatest missionary ever, but he wasn't the one behind it all. And he wasn't about to take the credit for the successes that he had seen through all of his work. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus I have reason to boast. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Paul understood that the power and the ability that led him to be faithful and to see fruit in his ministry had nothing to do with his resume or his capabilities. It had everything to do with the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit accomplishing that work through him. I mean, think about it. How could a Jewish man like Paul have such unprecedented success in Gentile territory? Holy Spirit, power of God, power of signs and wonders. Sure, Paul made a great impact, but it wasn't because he had something we don't. Listen, Paul had the same gospel we preach. He had the same power we have access to, the Holy Spirit. He has the same Savior. He had the same Old Testament. He didn't know, but he was writing the New Testament. We have access to the the same resources that Paul had. Paul didn't have something we don't. In fact, we could argue we probably have a little more than Paul had. We've got the complete revelation, don't we? Old and New Testament. But we need to be reminded that because we have access to the same resources and even more than Paul had, that we too must rely upon the power of God in the work that we're called to do. I mean, it reminds us of all kinds of things, practically speaking, in our day and time. When we see Paul saying these things, it should remind us that we all need to acknowledge our dependency upon the Lord. I know that that sounds cliche and and something that we always say uh, as Christians. Yes, my power comes from the Lord. Yes, I need to depend on the Lord, but... How, how are you doing this week with that? Listen, mission and ministry is not about you, nor is it in your ability to bring about the work of God. You don't have the power to convert people. You don't have the power to transform people in you, like you yourself. Minus, minus God, you, that you have the capability on your own to somehow 
convince someone of what is true and somehow transform someone's life, you need to acknowledge that if any good is going to come from you, it's going to come from the power of God upon you and through you, not you. That's the only reason, well, there are many reasons, but that's the only reason I get up here each week. This is is not about me. This is not about my ability to reason and think and, and make good arguments and those kinds of things because I'm a weak man. I know that if I get up and I, and I give my best to, to present the truth to you, that God in his grace and by his power is going to do what he chooses to do in you and through you. So acknowledge your dependency upon the Lord, but also be quick to give all credit to the Lord. Listen, it's all his work. He's the captain of the boat, and we're merely his deckhands. It's his work, but he's, listen, he's invited us to take part in the work. Because that should be both amazing and humbling at the same time. That God is doing a work in his world as he has chosen and as he has determined, and it is by his power that that work is unfolding, and yet he has invited you and me to be part of it. Paul got that. And because these things are true, it should also lead us to take big risk for the sake of the kingdom, knowing that God is at work. Listen, God's mission cannot ultimately fail. Can't. God will do as he said. God's work will be accomplished. The nations will be gathered in. Revelation 5 that I read earlier for our call to worship, that will take place. Because that's true, that should spur us and that should compel us to pour out our lives as living sacrifices, Romans 12, as living sacrifices that we would pour out ourselves for the sake of God's mission throughout the world. It should foster in us a confidence and a boldness to embrace the work that God has called us to do. which is going to tie right into my fourth point. We need to recognize God's power, but we also, number four and lastly, cultivate the right ambition. We need to connect to the right community, have a healthy understanding of what church is to be about and what should mark and characterize churches. We should see worship as the proper end. We should recognize that it's the power of God that's upon our lives that accomplishes that work. And then number four, we should cultivate the right ambition. Notice what Paul says. He he goes on. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, these miraculous things that accompanied oftentimes the preaching of the word, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, he's able to say, I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So let's stop right there for a minute. Notice what he says in verse 19. B, the second part of that. So by the power of signs and wonders of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean that Paul's moving on to Rome and then Spain because every single person in that region Paul was able to share the gospel with? That'd be a lot of work. That's not what that means. Paul is not saying that he had preached the gospel to every single person in that region. He's simply pointing out kind of the the arc, if you will, that goes from Jerusalem around that Mediterranean region, that part of the world, kind of a general area, basically saying that his ministry had extended far beyond Jerusalem. And on this arc, if you will, if you were to look up through Turkey, Asia Minor, and Greece, had had had, had an impact in that whole region. Not that he was able to speak the gospel into every single person's life, but that his ministry and the ministry through his 
partners in ministry had made it possible for people in those areas to have access to the gospel through churches that were planted in the major cities, especially in that part of the world. And Paul says, I've seen churches planted there. I want to go see churches planted somewhere else. I want you to notice two things about this ambition that Paul has that I think informs, should help inform our own ambitions. First of all, the nature of his ambition in verse 20. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. Now, this is Paul speaking about his own personal conviction, about his own personal calling. Certainly, there would have still been the need for pastors, for church planters, and for missionaries in this part of the world where Paul and his, his partners had already preached and been. But for Paul personally, his ambition is, is driven by a particular focus among the unreached, those who had never heard the gospel, those who had never had access to the gospel. Someone once compared Paul to, uh, similar to, to being like an early American frontiersman who would keep moving west so long as they saw smoke rising from someone else's cabin. It's kind of how Paul, he's, there's more work to be done, there's more, there's more to get to. So Paul's not saying that it's bad and wrong to build on someone else's foundation. That's what we're doing here, isn't it? We're building on good foundation that's been laid before us. In fact, you can find examples of this in the Bible. Apollos in Corinth, Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete. Example after example of building on foundations that have already been laid. But what we do see here is this idea of ambition. While we may not follow exactly the calling that Paul had upon his life to be a, a missionary to the Gentiles, the circumstances are different. There is, though, something about his ambition that should instruct us. You see, the gospel is the very thing that compelled him to do what he did. Friends, we may not be on the frontier of missions living among the unreached. But that doesn't mean that our ambition should somehow be less. The gospel compelled Paul to do what he did, and so for us, the gospel should compel us to do what we are called to be and to do today. Listen, some of you, some of you need to prayerfully consider going to the unreached peoples of this world. And I pray that God would raise people up, men and women in this church, to go to the ends of the earth. Our kids, our grandkids, some of you who are retired and have the time, go. Go pour yourself out among the unreached and let us be part of seeing that great kingdom of God built as the gospel advances through the nations and as more and more people are brought into the church, into the kingdom of God. Friends, some of you need to go do that. And in some way, all of us should ask, Lord, would you send me? Many of us will not be sent to the ends of the earth. Regardless, whether you stay or whether you go, the big thing we see here is that Paul had an undeniable gospel ambition that compelled him to spend his life to make Christ known where he was. Makes me think about our own ambitions. You see that this was his ambition. Your circumstances will not look exactly like his, and your living places will not be exactly like Paul's. But it should make you ask the question about your own ambitions. You see, I, I'm convinced, I think about my own. I'm, I'm convinced that, that when it comes to our own ambitions, if we're honest, they are either too weak or too self-focused. Many of us even have unhealthy ambitions that distract us from what matters most. Think about that as a church, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. What is our ambition? If the driving ambition, which we're going to, Lord willing, get to one day, is just to get ourselves a building, friends, I don't want to be part of that. 
I'm looking forward to having a building. Praise God for that. You're going to hear a lot more about that in the coming year, by the way. But I want, I want you to remember this sermon, like you remember all the sermons, where I said that if our driving ambition is just to have a building sit up on a hill over there so that we can say, look at us, that's not a gospel ambition. That's not what the gospel compels us to do. Yes, we want a building, and yes, we want to have a permanent place in this community so that we, so that, so that we can be sent to this community and invest in this community and love our neighbors and bring people in to the, to the church and see them discipled, see them won to Christ and baptized, but also so that we can continue the gospel mission that God has given us to go to the ends of the earth. What about you individually? What compels you? Listen, what, what gets you up in the morning? Friends, the gospel ought to be the key driving factor for what we do no matter where we live or what we do. It doesn't matter what you do as a profession or even if you're a student or if you're retired, if you're married or you're single. At some level, the same ambition ought to be stirring all of our hearts. That we ought to have the same large desire to see the gospel proclaimed and see disciples made, no matter who you are. And that, to to the glory of God, that ought to be the thing that gets us up in the morning and that drives us on in our work. I mean, why else would we need to be here? I mean, when God saved you, he could have just brought you on to heaven. Friends, it's because you have work to do that he's invited you to take part in. And he's going to provide you the power to be able to go forward in faithfulness. Friends, many of us have the wrong ambition. And that can just be seen easily in the idols that we create in our life. What success looks like. What our bank accounts we're hoping to be. What it is that we spend most of our time doing. If it's not compelled by the gospel, then it's a wrong and unhealthy ambition. So the nature of the ambition matters. You see it with Paul. This is what it led him to do. What is it leading you to do? But then there's the source of our ambition. Look at verse 21 just quickly. He quotes Isaiah chapter 52, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Where did Paul get this ambition? It's simple. He read his Bible. He read Isaiah chapter 52. He saw God's heart for the nations and he said, that's what I want to be part of. Yes, there's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. I understand all those theological things. Yes, there is that. There is the, the conversion on all of these things. I get it, yes. But a big part of that is he simply read his Bible. Friends, you can't read the Bible faithfully and not come away thinking different things than our selfish tendencies tend to produce. You, you can't be faithful observer and, and student of Scripture without coming away changed without seeing things through the lens of God and through, through the way that he in, desires transformation to take place. The ambitions you have for this life, listen, you will have an ambition and it will be informed by something. All of us have it right now. You, you have desires, you have ambitions, and those desires and ambitions are informed by something. What we're saying here is, Shouldn't that be the gospel? Shouldn't that be the power of God? Shouldn't that be to be spent as a living sacrifice to the Lord? Friends, let us be faithful giving ourselves diligently to God's word. Yielded to the Holy Spirit so that we have a taste for where God's heart is and that we would join him there. You see, there's no question that Paul served a unique role in the life and development of the early church. He paved the way forward. In many respects, in many respects, what he did cannot be repeated. It was unique to his calling, unique to his day and time. But listen, much of what we see in these verses, while unique to Paul, are timeless. They're good for every believer in every age. And friends, if we're going to be great 
Commission people. If we're going to love the things that God loves and, and have a heart driven by the things that drive the heart of God, then we need to know that we're going to have to spend our lives on planet Earth investing in the things that are eternal and being part strategically in some way of seeing the gospel go forth to our neighbors and nations for the glory of God. How do we do that? I think you get a little glimpse here. You invest yourself in a healthy local church. You know the goal of God's mission that drives you forward to see God glorified. You rely upon the power that God provides. And you make sure that your desires and ambitions are driven and compelled by the gospel, first and foremost. Friends, let's be that kind of people. Whether we go to the unreached or where we go across the street, let's be that kind of people. Let's look like that. And let's give ourselves the rest of our lives for the calling of God to see the nations rejoice and be glad. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to see your work. Even though we look back to hundreds of years prior, thousands of years prior even, We thank you that we can open the Bible and even through this inspired letter see the heart that you gave Paul. But Lord, it's it's a heart that was compelled by something we all share. It will lead us to different locations. It will lead us to different ministries. It will lead us to, to doing different things most definitely. But the very thing that drove Paul is the very same thing that drives us. So Lord, by your Holy Spirit and by the truth of the gospel, would you shape our desires? Would you shape our ambitions? Would you empower us as your people? Would you help us to see your glory and worship as the the goal and the aim of all that we do? And Father, would you help us to do that together as those who covenant together in this local church? Father, would you help us be faithful? to the calling you've given us to go forth and make disciples of all nations. May that be true here. May that be true to the ends of the earth for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.